0: Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, I reveal the single biggest gift that 10 years inside a top Formula One team has left me with for the rest of my life. Plus, one of the big tricks you can play in life and business to create a differentiator and advantage for yourself that most people overlook. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's that's a failure. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Thank you very much for joining wherever it is you are in the world and however it is you're listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I want to jump straight in this week because I've got a couple of things that I really want to talk about, things that happened to me over the course of the week, things that I saw happening in the world of Formula One that I think are worthy of deeper discussion. And that's what this podcast is all about, trying to pick out the moments in life that I experience that we see happening around us that happens inside Formula One that I feel we can take lessons from or learnings from to apply to our daily lives. Somebody asked me what my podcast is about the other day and one of the best ways I hope I can describe it and I hope you'll agree with this is that I try to help you the listener to think about the challenges that you come up against every single day in a similar way to the way that a Formula One team would think about those challenges. Think about it in that elite F1 style mindset of overcoming challenges and taking on the world, creating opportunities for yourself and achieving great things. That's the purpose of this podcast. So a few things like that have happened this week and I want to jump straight into those. The first of them centered around an event that I was speaking at this week. One of the things I do today is I go and share my learnings that I've taken from Formula One in the same way I'm doing here on the podcast. I do it to the corporate world. I go and speak to big companies that are going through change or that want to go through change, that want to change their culture, want to build an elite level team environment within their business. And I go and talk about the methods that we have developed in Formula One, the things I've learned through my time in Formula One, that they might be able to apply to their companies and organisations to become stronger and better. And that's what I was doing this week. I went into the Netherlands, uh, down to Eindhoven, where I had a huge event. It's one of the biggest events I've done. Uh, 3,500 people listening to me talk about the things I've learned in Formula One that could apply to them in a very different world to the world that I existed in at McLaren, but a world nonetheless that has opportunity to do better. And that applies to every single one of us and every single company out there. So 3,500 people listening to my hour-long talk about teamwork, about team building, about cultural change, creating an environment that allows people to thrive and get the best out of each other. Of course, that's what every organization is hoping to achieve in the most part, because that's what generates the success that people are after. But what I want to speak about today was at the end of that talk, when I got a round of applause and people started clapping and I was finished, then came a series of questions from the audience. And I always really enjoy that part of the process because that's the part where I get feedback. I get to really engage with the people that have just heard me speak. And I get a variety of questions. Some are around Formula One. Who's going to win the World Championship? I get the typical ones. Who's the best driver in the sport? I get all this kind of thing. But I also get questions that are specific to the talk that I've just done, and how it can apply more specifically to situations that they might be facing themselves. On this particular occasion, I got a really great question. And the question came, I think, with a slightly different meaning to the way that I interpreted it and then answered it. The question was, what's the best gift that you ever received in Formula One? And that was it. That was a simple question. But the question came with a meaning, I think that it was more around which piece of memorabilia do you you know, count as your most prized possession from your time in the sport? Did you take anything? Did the drivers give you anything? Did you get any crash helmets? Did you get anything that you've taken away from your time that now sits on a mantelpiece and makes you very proud at home? And, you know, I do have those things. I have crash helmets from Kimi Räikkönen, an amazing one with a little inscription on the back saying, thank you for all the help that I gave him during his time at McLaren. That is one of my most prized possessions. I've got champagne bottles from some of the most famous wins that we achieved as a team during the 10 years that I was there. Again, incredible possessions that are unique and things that I have a huge amount of pride in owning. But the way I interpreted that question was a little bit different. I looked at that question and I sort of flipped it on its head a little bit. And I said, well, the biggest gift that I have ever taken from my time in Formula One, a gift, as I said in the opener to this podcast, that sits with me still today, and I have no doubt will stay with me for the remainder of my days, is the gift of an F1 mindset, of specifically believing that anything can be possible. And that's the single biggest thing that I think I've taken away from my time at McLaren and Formula One. The true and honest belief that nothing's impossible if we set our minds to it. It's a engineering way of thinking, is it? It's how the greatest engineers think. They don't think about the problems. They think about the solutions. They think about ways to overcome the problems. And that's something that was ingrained in me over my time in the pit lane in F1. It's something that Certainly was ingrained in me at my time at McLaren. It was the way we operated at McLaren. We never saw a challenge as being too big. The answer that came back to a question of, can we do this? was never no. The answer was always, well, yes, we can do that. Of course, we can do that. But you know, this is going to be a big challenge. If we want to do that, it's going to cost us this amount of money or it's going to take this amount of time. We might need to invest in some new equipment or machinery, some new process. We might need to bring more people in on the project. There might be hurdles to overcome, but the answer was always, yes, we can do it. And that, as a mindset, is an enormously powerful thing to have. It's something that today I try my very best to instill in my own children as they're growing up. It's a difficult thing to instill because what you need is to be surrounded by evidence that these things are in fact possible. And that's what Formula One gave me. I was immersed in an environment for 10 years um, around the very best people in every element of that industry. You know, I'm talking about the engineers were the very best engineers, the designers, the very best designers, the mechanics, the technicians, everybody was the best in their business. And it went right through the entire company. The accountants, the very best we had. The people in the office, the cleaners, everybody had to be elite level to survive in that environment because expectations were so high. And we were reaching for the stars every single week in terms of pushing the boundaries of our development in engine technology, suspension technology, chassis tech. Every single thing that we did, we had to be pushing even harder than we were pushing the week before, which was already, by the way, pushing to the limit. But the point is, the limit is a continuously moving place. It's not something that you reach and then it's over. And that's the way that I now think because of my time at McLaren. It's a powerful thing because it means that you can always be shooting for something greater. You can always be looking to improve on what you did yesterday. And to have that mindset now ingrained in me, that's the very reason I answered that question by saying the greatest gift that my time in Formula One has ever given me over those 10 years, is the honest belief that nothing's impossible. And if we can start to think about that in the sense of our own lives and the sense of our companies and businesses, imagine how powerful that can be for us. If you had no boundaries in the way you could think about problems, if you could free up the people in your organisation to be more creative, to have no limitations on what they could aim for, there may be things like budgetary requirements that prevent you doing certain things at certain times. It may be that although we've got this brilliant idea that could create an advantage for us, maybe we can't afford to do it today, but maybe it's something we can work towards in the future. The idea is still there. The idea can continuously be developed in the background until the point where we can actually go ahead and action it where we might have saved up enough money to do it, where we might have built the company to a size where we've got enough people to be able to do it. We might have uh, invested in the piece of equipment or the the process uh, management or the people skills, the people training. We might have done all of those things that take time and then eventually we can come back and we can action the idea that somebody had some time ago. But if you don't give people the freedom to think big, bigger than they might ordinarily think, bigger than your competition might be thinking. And that might be the key here. If you free people up to think on that grander scale, the ideas that come from it can be out of this world. If you think out of this world, you'll get ideas out of this world. And that is an immensely powerful thing to have. It can be a differentiator between you and your competition. Now, I touched on the fact there that I was surrounded during my time at McLaren and in Formula 1's pit lane by evidence that anything was possible because people were achieving the almost impossible every single week. We were blown away by the things that we were able to bring to the car on a weekly basis in terms of upgrades and performance enhancements. We were absolutely gobsmacked sometimes by what the competition could bring to their car. We could see it in front of our eyes. We could see these incredible developments happening on incredible timescales, but ideas that had come from incredible people, only by thinking outside the box and thinking differently and having the freedom to have this belief that anything is possible. So I could see it every single day I went into work, every single week I turned up at a racetrack. I had evidence that the impossible could actually always be possible somehow. So how do you instill that in your own life, in your own children, in the people around you, in your business, if you don't necessarily have that same amount of evidence that I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by in Formula One. And I've been thinking about this more and more when it comes, of course, to my own children, because I would love them to grow up with this same mindset. I'd love them to have that belief that anything's possible, because quite literally then, anything's possible. What an amazing way to live your life, particularly through those early years As you're growing up, as you're learning, as you're growing as a human being, as you're embarking on the journey of life without any limitations of what your life could be. What an amazing place to be. Of course, if you think about it, our children are born and then go through their very, very early years with this incredible imagination where they firmly believe at that point anything is possible. They want to be astronauts. They want to go to space. They want to do all manner of things because they have nothing telling them they can't do that. It's only after that, as they start to grow up and emerge in society, and we as parents have a responsibility for this as well, the education system and society as a whole have developed incredibly bad and destructive habits of restricting and limiting that imagination that children have. We start to tell children that, you know, you probably can't be an astronaut, you probably can't go to space you know, you might want to think about these kind of options as a career. Our school system does the same thing. Our careers advisors put in front of our children a set of pretty standard, mundane career options. I mean, it's changing gradually now, but that's always been the case. And when you start to hear those things over and over again, that imagination you had that was absolutely limitless, where you were aiming for the stars, sometimes quite literally Begins to get pegged back, begins to get closed in a little bit, and you start to become more inadvertent commas, realistic. You start to aim for things that people tell you you can achieve, not the kind of things that you have this outright belief that you probably could achieve if you set your mind to it. That's the belief that I want my children to have that they can aim for the stars, they can go to space if they want, they can become an astronaut. Who says they can't? So the answer to that question of how do you sort of create this evidence, how do you start to create this mindset of freedom, of freedom of thinking, is it starts very, very early on. We, as a society, and this is where I come in as a parent in my own little world, have to start changing the way we communicate to our children. We have to start encouraging these incredible dreams that they have. Daydreams, looking out the window at school, imagining what you could do in the future is something that to some extent we shouldn't be holding back. Of course, there are times and places when people have to knuckle down and focus on certain things. But that freedom to daydream, to imagine, is something that gets knocked out of us very early on in our lives. And that is the very first place that we have to start to make changes. It's exactly the same in our businesses to a large extent. We have expectations of what a certain person with a certain job title should be doing on a daily basis, what their achievements should be, what their remit is. And we don't really like it when they start to spread their wings outside of that remit, when they start to encroach on other people's territory, if you like, when they go outside of what their job description says when they start to think about the way that other people are operating the company, when they come up with ideas that might help to improve the management's way of doing things. But if they're not management, well, they're not supposed to have those ideas. Well, the truth is we should be encouraging all of those ideas. And it's this change of mindset generally that, of course, begins to gradually, over time, change the mindset of the individual's who might now have the freedom to think differently, to dream big, to aim for bigger than where they're currently sat in their position in life, to aim for something higher up the tree within an organisation, but also to expand their own position within that organisation. If they've got ideas that might improve the company or improve their own way of working, why not listen to those ideas? Why not? Just because it doesn't fall within the remit of their job description, as long as they're able to achieve their own job and still have capacity for thinking differently, those are the kind of people we want running our businesses. They're the kinds of people we should be looking at to promote through the organisation. Because if one day that person who was at the shop floor level and yet was already thinking like a manager, was already thinking about the bigger picture of the company, thinking about new ways of doing things that no one had ever thought of before because they were pie-in-the-sky ideas, as we may have seen them. Those are the people we want one day at the top of the company, because that's what shapes a company culture. So changing those tiny little details about the way we allow people to operate around us, from our children to our employees, is crucial. It's a very small step, and it's a tiny step, and it's a step that's the very start of a very long journey. But that's one thing we can change today. We can all do that. We can all start to encourage those different ways of thinking. And particularly when it comes to children, try your best not to restrict the way your children think. Try not to hold back their ambition. Don't reset their expectations. Give them the freedom to set wild and crazy expectations of themselves. And if they want to go out with a dedication that is required to achieve those, what an incredible moment that will finally be for them when they make it. And right there is that evidence that people, them and the people around them can one day be looking to for inspiration for the start of their own journey so i 'm trying to do that with my children, just free them up to think bigger than we might have done in the past i'm trying to reset the way that the school treats them because I totally disagree in some areas of the way the education system operates in terms of the way it shapes them as a, as a human being. We spend an enormous amount of time in the school system teaching children about Pythagoras' theorem and how the earth was formed and the various layers of the, the earth's core and crust and all those things you remember from school. We teach them about the history of the monarchy and the various wars that happened. These are all important things, but we do it, I believe, at the expense of teaching them some of the much more valuable lessons that they will need in life as they move forward and beyond school. And I'm not sure I've used trigonometry since I left school. I'm not really sure I've ever had to label a diagram with the various elements of the earth's core on it ever since I left that lesson that I did it all those years ago in school. But I have had to learn to develop emotional intelligence. I've had to learn how to have detailed and complex conversations with people. I've had to have difficult conversations with people. No one's taught me how to do that. I've had to manage very tricky situations. I've had to, I've had to learn to manage finances in my life and my companies. No one taught me how to do that. I've had to manage other people's emotions and expectations. Again, really important factors in our lives, things that can help to shape our successes or failures in life. And yet we spent zero time on that in school. We spend a lot of time learning about trigonometry, but that hasn't really helped me in later life. So there must be a way that we can change the education system and tailor it to different children, to individuals, but also give us the basic skills for life, not just the basic skills that were applicable to the very few careers that we deemed to be worthy many years ago when that education system was designed. No one taught me how to dream big in school. In fact, the very opposite happened. The school system taught me to contain my dreams, to become more realistic with my expectations. And I just wonder how many people in this world have been restricted, held back because of that very fact. I was lucky. I got a second education in that field when I got into the world of Formula One. But most people never get that. So that is one of the things that I'm trying to impart to my children today. I'm trying to impart it to you right now because a different way of thinking when it comes to educating our children and the people around us is the very first small step to changing the way those people then think. And imagine as the generations go through, if everybody starts to incrementally think bigger to dispel those restrictive beliefs that so many people have. Imagine the possibilities that could come from that. Now, the other way that I think we can actively go about trying to generate this mindset that I'm talking about, this idea that anything's possible. How can we instill that in our children and the people around us if we don't have all of that evidence, as I said, that I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by in Formula One? Well, the way we can do that and the way that I'm trying to do that with my own children is to pick out the evidence that is there because there is always some evidence in our lives, in the days that have gone by, in the people around us, in the situations we've witnessed where something extraordinary has been achieved by somebody thinking outside the box, thinking bigger than we might currently think ourselves. There are moments in life that we can pick out as tiny pieces of evidence. It may not happen every single day of our lives. You know, inside a Formula One team, as I said, I was immersed in it. Every single person was almost thinking this way. It was an incredible experience. We may not have that to the same extent in our lives, but there is always something that we can pick out. And one tiny little example, and this is the smallest example, and that's the very reason I'm giving you this example, because it's tiny. It seems so inconsequential. But my son, a 12 year old boy who has a number of bad habits, like we all do, annoying ones, doesn't put the lid on the toothpaste tube when he's finished, (laughs) Uh, doesn't put his towel away after a shower, doesn't pick his pants up off the floor once he's had a shower, and the next person that walks into the shower room is faced with his old pants on the floor. (laughs) Really annoying, really frustrating. I've been on at him for a long time to try and remember to do those things after he goes through that morning process in the bathroom. Now, He always had this vision that, well, look, I can't do it. You know, he used to get frustrated when I used to tell him, mate, you've forgotten to pick your towel, uh, you know, put your towel away and pick your pants up. You haven't put the toothpaste lid on. And I'd tell him every single day, and he'd get more and more annoyed and frustrated because he just believed that he couldn't do it. He was in that moment regretful that he hadn't done it, but when it came to the moment of actually doing it, he just forgot. It wasn't far enough up his priority list that he just forgot. But over time, I took this viewpoint that if I pick him up on it every day, and I'm never going to go and do those things for him, I am going to make him stop whatever he's doing to go back and do it himself. Even if that's really annoying, even if he's in the middle of his breakfast, if he's in the middle of doing something that he really loves, he's got to stop it in that exact moment, drop whatever he's doing, and he's got to go back, he's got to put his towel away, he's got to pick his pants up, put them in the washing basket, and he's got to put the toothpaste lid back on the toothpaste tube. Now, that can make me the bad guy for a period of time. That can be annoying. I'm the most annoying parent in the world when I'm doing that over the period of a a couple of weeks as it was every single day. And it was every single day. I'd get rolls of his eyes. I'd get huffs and puffs. I'd get, can I just do it in a minute? I'm in the middle of this. And I'd say, no, you go and do it now. And what happened was over that two week period, he gradually began to change his habits. He formed a new habit whereby when he got out of the shower, he picked his pants up and he walked back to his bedroom and he put them in the washing basket. When he'd finished getting dried and dressed, he'd put his towel back on the peg. And when he'd done his teeth, the toothpaste lid would go back on. And it took a few weeks to get to this point, a few really annoying weeks. But the point here is, and the message that I want you to pick out of this, is that he achieved something that he didn't think was possible. Now, as I said earlier, this is the most insignificant, tiny example of this. But in his world, he'd managed to do something that he firmly believed he could never do because he'd already tried and tried and tried and he just couldn't do it. He couldn't remember. But through a period of two weeks of correcting that habit, it is now a habit. So now it's harder for him not to do those things than it is for him to do them because that habit has been installed, locked in, coded into him. But as I said, the point is that he's done something. He's changed his behaviour in a way that he never thought he could. Now, there is one tiny piece of evidence that I can reflect on and talk to him about and show him that he's achieved something amazing. Now, it might only be picking your pants up on the floor, but if it's something you firmly believed was not possible, but now you've done it and you're doing it every day, you've achieved what you thought was the impossible there's some evidence right there that you can shoot for something bigger than you've currently got in your life. Now, of course, that's the tiniest piece of evidence that I could possibly think of. It's very small, but it's evidence nonetheless. And there are bigger things that happen to you every single day, every single week. It might be getting an unexpected grade for a subject that you think you struggle in at school. It might be achieving something at work that you just never thought you could possibly do. Having somebody really important in your company recognise something that you do, something that you've done, giving you a little bit of a credit, shouting you out to the rest of the company. And you can go back, of course, even further than that. The very first time as toddlers we tried to learn to walk the first time we did it we fell over the very first hurdle we collapsed in a heap and then we got up and we tried to do it again and we collapsed again and we did that over and over again and it looks like it was an impossible challenge and yet look at us now most of us i'm sure are able to walk same thing we tried to we tried to ride a bike for the first time you're almost certainly going to fall off and repeatedly you're going to get back on that bike have another go and fall off again it seems like an impossible challenge at that stage. Learning a language, even as an adult today, people don't even take the first step in learning a language because they use that excuse of, well, I wish I'd done it earlier. I wish I'd done it when I was a child. It's so much easier to learn a language when you're young. There may be truth in that. Doesn't mean it's impossible. Of course, the idea of learning a language seems like an impossible task right now because it's huge. It's huge. Who's got time to do that? We've all got time to do it if we want it badly enough. And if we want it badly enough, we can make it happen. We could learn to speak a completely different language to the one we know today. We know that. There's evidence for that because we've all done it. None of us spoke the language that we speak in the very first few years of our lives. But we gradually developed that skill. We honed that skill. We practiced over and over again until we achieved it. These things are much more possible than we give ourselves credit for. And we've got evidence dotted all the way through our lives that prove it to us. So the way that I approach this with my own children is I look back through recent times and more historic times for those evidential moments, the moments where they first believed something was impossible, but then it became possible. They did it. They achieved it and that's the evidence they need to just trigger something in their mind to know that actually they can do more than they think because when we think about it we think about the the negatives we think about the restrictions that we're up against we think about the challenge we think about the hurdles we'd have to overcome to to get to the end of that challenge to get to the success that we might be hoping for at the end of it my daughter started playing football recently but she couldn't do kickups one of her friends could do 20 kickups and my daughter wanted to be able to do those things as well, but she couldn't do it. She could do one, two, on occasion, she'd get to three. Now she could do 10 kickups. She can easily do 10 kickups without really thinking about it, only because she dedicated some time and energy to it. She focused on it. She practiced. She believed that it might be possible, and that's what kept her going. If she'd maintained that belief that it was going to be impossible, she'd have given up at the first hurdle. Why would you ever continue to try and do something that you firmly believe is impossible? And it's the one single thing that stops us achieving our goals and our dreams in life is a belief that we can't do it, that it's not possible to do. It's not possible to do for us. Look around you. Look back. Look at the things you have achieved that you once thought were impossible, that simple example of my son now having a habit locked in, which means he no longer leaves his pants on the floor of the bathroom after a shower. It may, it may be funny. It may make me smile. You know, it probably makes you smile. But it's now a piece of evidence that he's got locked in inside his own brain that he's now able to achieve things that he first thought he could never achieve. And if you expand on that even further, it goes greater. It becomes bigger. You can start to achieve even bigger things because you know the theory behind it. You know that the things you thought were impossible in the beginning actually weren't. Every single thing that you find easy today, you once found hard. Think about that for a moment and use that as the evidence that you need to free up your mindset. I said earlier that the greatest gift that my time at McLaren and in Formula One has given me is exactly that – a belief that anything can be achieved. I'm now passing that gift on, hopefully to my children, but also hopefully to you by thinking differently and understanding that the one thing that restricts us most in our lives is our own mindset. And if we can change it, even just in a tiny, tiny way, we can start to achieve a whole lot more. Okay, now, before I move on to the second topic of today's episode, I just want to very quickly say, can you please, please, please drop me a like, a follow, a subscribe and especially and I will be your best friend forever. Could you go to the Apple podcast store if that's where you're listening? And I know most of you do because I know that from the analytics. If you're listening on Apple, please just do me a quick review. A couple of lines, that's all it takes. A few seconds, a five-star rating if you've enjoyed it, and a very quick review makes a massive, massive difference to this podcast. I would really appreciate it if you can do it. Thank you very much. Okay, let me move it on then, because uh, this weekend, the Austrian Grand Prix weekend, uh, I was lucky enough, uh, very grateful to be back in the commentary box uh, for practice and qualifying on Friday of the Austrian Grand Prix, where I noticed and saw and witnessed, as many of you will have done, a kind of disappointing moment for Formula One. It's not something that's new. It's not something unique. But the moment when Lewis Hamilton crashed during qualifying, went into the barriers reasonably heavily. He was okay, but he had a, a really big impact into the barriers. There was a huge cheer from what appeared to be the Max Verstappen fans in one of the grandstands or some of the grandstands. Now, as I said, this is not unusual. It's not new to Formula One. I've been on the receiving end of some really vociferous, really angry, really abusive fan engagement, let's call it, at the hands of Ferrari fans back in the day when they had this big rivalry between McLaren and Ferrari. I know it happens. It's part of this Gang mentality that when a huge number of people who are supporting one particular person or looking for one particular outcome, when a different outcome happens, it stirs up emotion, it stirs up passion, and people get carried away in those moments. But it was really disappointing on the obvious level for me to hear a group of fans, a large group of fans, cheering at the misfortune suffered by another competitor. Misfortune that could have resulted in injury. It could have been more serious than it was. It wasn't, fortunately, but the fans weren't to know that at that time. They were cheering because one of their main rivals had crashed. And that's clearly a disappointing way for Formula One fans to operate. As I said, it's not unique to Max Verstappen fans. It's not something specific to them. It's not something we haven't seen many, many times before. We see it in other sports. And I will hold my hands up and say I've been to enough football matches to say and admit that I have been a part of that gang mentality, that gang culture that does cheer when someone misses a penalty when someone gets tackled and falls over, trips over their own ball. I've shouted at the referee when he's made a decision that I don't agree with. Of course, I've done those things. The reason I'm bringing this up is there's an obvious level here where it's disappointing. It's just human beings behaving in a way that's disappointing, that's not nice, that's not kind. But that's really where the point I want to extrapolate comes from here because I now spend my life going around the world, talking to companies, as I said earlier, talking about how those companies can find advantages for themselves, how they can be better, how they can succeed more, achieve their goals and dreams. Which things can they do? Which techniques can they use to become better than the competition? And one of, as I said in the opening quote of this particular podcast episode, one of the biggest tricks or techniques That a business can use, but this applies to us as individuals as well, to use as a differentiator, to create an advantage for ourselves that is often overlooked by so many people. It's just applying the trait of kindness to our lives and our businesses, Now, most people, many people, will roll their eyes at that. They'll say, that's not how you run a good business. You've got to be ruthless. You've got to be brutal. You've got to trample on the opposition when they're down because that's how you get ahead. It's a competitive world. The same applies to Formula One. And there is, of course, some truth in that being successful in a company, in a business, in a competitive environment comes at the expense of somebody else not being successful. There can be only one winner in Formula One. Only one person can win the race. That means everyone else didn't win the race. And if you really want to win that race, you've got to win it at the expense of others. I'm not talking about that. That's a competitive nature. That is looking for competitive advantage through your craft, through your skill. That's being better than the competition. I'm talking about having all of that. Of course, we need that if we want to succeed. We need that to succeed in life. Life is a competition in so many levels, and we need to be better than the rest of that competition if we want to be the ones to succeed. That is the nature of the world we live in. It is life. I enjoy that sense of competition. I enjoy that challenge of trying to strive to be the best in something that I set out to achieve. But I'm talking about complementing that, complementing that strategy with the strategy, and that's definitely the wrong word, it's not a strategy, but with the trait, with the characteristic of kindness, of being kind to others, of thinking about others, empathy. Those are fluffy, soft skills that many people term them, that in years gone by, would often be seen as a weakness, particularly in the world of business. You can't be seen to be kind and empathetic. That's a weakness. People will trample all over you if you do that. But there is a way that you can do both. You should be highly competitive. You should be striving to be the best. You should be honing your craft or your skill, gathering experiences, using everything in your capability to be the best at whatever it is you want to do. If we go back many, many thousands of years in our revolution, of course, things are very different. We had to fight. We had to fight brutally to the death quite often between tribes because when another tribe arrived, they were fighting us to take our possessions, our territory, our food, our lives. We had to fight back or we'd die. Only one winner could emerge and not because somebody would concede and accept defeat, but because the very survival of our tribe came at the direct expense of another tribe. There was simply no room for kindness outside of your own community. But that's no longer the case anymore. And the reason I'm saying this is a differentiator today, this is a competitive advantage for those who embrace the idea of kindness in business and life, is because the world has changed so much. If you're a company, your consumers, your clients, whether that's customers who buy a product or a service, partners that want to be associated with your brand, they now want something different than just that product or service. They are thinking about the value system that your company operates on. They're thinking about the beliefs that your company is built upon. Do they align with their own values? These are important factors now for the commercial businesses, the consumer businesses that operate in the world. They have to start thinking that way. People want to be associated with a brand that's kind. When kindness is now seen as a value that's not only just celebrated, but necessary in life, not just inside your own community or your own tribe, but outside, especially outside of that tribe to the wider world. With that now being a factor in people's decision making processes around who they want to be associated with, we have to start taking that more seriously. And of course, there are so many more reasons than just that, that we should be thinking about being kind. It's just a good thing to do. Of course, we should be kind to everybody around us. It may give us competitive advantage. And that's what I talk to businesses about. It's not a soft skill. It's not a fluffy thing anymore. It's certainly not a weakness. It's something that could put your business, your company in a better position than it might be today when you don't employ or utilise those characteristics. You will have people in your organisation who are kind. Hopefully you've got a lot of them. Hopefully most people are. In an ideal world, everybody is inside your company. But is your company utilising kindness as one of its core values, because if it isn't, and yet you've got a huge number of people who all have kindness as one of their key characteristics, possibly even one of their top value beliefs, well, then you're missing out on a trick. If you're not tapping into that skill set, that resource that is littered right throughout your organization, if you're not tapping into that and linking it to the values and beliefs of your own company, you're missing a trick. It doesn't have to come at the expense of a ruthless, competitive nature that you might have built your brand or your business on. You should embrace that as well. That's a core strategic competitive advantage you've created for yourself. And that competition, that competitive nature that you might be holding as one of your main values is also something to be celebrated In business as in life, we need to be competitive. We need to fight for our position. We need to fight for the success that we want. And it may well come, it will come in fact, at the expense of others because there can be only one winner in most of these big competitions like Formula One. But that's fair game. That's fair competition. That's the very name of the game. We want to beat the rest to become the best. However, you can still do that with kindness. We saw Lewis Hamilton at the end of Abu Dhabi in 2021, where he lost out in that the most controversial of circumstances. We won't go into all of that again, but just imagine how low Lewis Hamilton was feeling, how cheated he must have been feeling in that moment. And yet his very first thought was to go to Max Verstappen and to congratulate him, to put his arm around him and to tell him, well done, you're a world champion. Welcome to the club. What an amazing moment that was. What a moment of kindness that was. And how many people watched that and possibly just in that moment changed the way they thought about Lewis Hamilton? Maybe you were marginal on whether you liked Lewis Hamilton. Maybe you didn't like him. Maybe you weren't sure. But when you saw that, maybe it changed your mind. Maybe you were a Max Verstappen fan and he was your arch enemy, your arch rival all year. But in that moment... When his reaction was to come and give your guy a huge hug and say congratulations after the brutal defeat that Lewis Hamilton had just suffered, I wonder if that changed your opinion of Lewis Hamilton. In my day at McLaren, we had a really fierce couple of years fighting with the Renault team. It was typically Kimi versus Fernando Alonso on so many occasions, and we traded blows all the way through multiple seasons. We won many races, they won many races. It was blow for blow, a brutal fight between two great teams. And during that competition at McLaren, we closed our doors down, we grouped together to fight off the competition. We wanted to win so badly. And I remember on one of those particular years, 2005, when Fernando Alonso finally won the world title, and it was no longer something we could achieve in that year. We'd lost after a really tough fight where we had absolute belief we could have done it. And on many occasions we were in front and then they were in front and we wanted them to lose. Make no mistake, I wanted Renault to lose because that could have meant we would have won. Absolutely that's what I wanted and I would have done almost anything to make that happen. However, the moment we lost, the moment that was no longer possible, the moment they had been victorious, the very first thing that we did At our company, led by Ron Dennis, one of the most competitive individuals I know in this world, one of the men that must have been hurting more than most in that moment that we lost the championship, was Ron Dennis told all of us inside our garage at McLaren to go to the motorhome and grab every single bottle of champagne that had been prepared and brought to the racetrack just in case we'd won. He told us to take it through to Renault And to unleash it and celebrate with them and spray them in champagne and congratulate them on a really well fought victory. And I will never forget that moment. It was an incredible moment where we were down and yet we were so celebratory on their behalf. It was a fair fight, it was a great fight. We traded blows, as I said, all season, but in the end, they'd done the better job. They deserved to win. It wasn't unfair, they deserved to win. And so they needed and deserved to be congratulated. And at first I was a little confused because everyone was angry in our garage in the beginning. Everyone was down. We were feeling really low in that moment because we hadn't achieved what we set out to achieve. And I remember Ron Dennis saying, listen, hold your head up high, boys. You've done an incredible job this season. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We put an incredible fight together, but so did they. And through small margins, some things that were beyond our control, some things that we can learn from and come back and be better at in the future, but they did a better job and they deserve to be winners. And as with everything we do at McLaren, Ron Dennis told us to walk next door and hold our heads up up high and conduct ourselves in line with our beliefs of doing everything properly, doing things properly, maintaining our values, even in those moments where we might've wanted to display a very different emotion. Doing things properly was the thing that Ron Dennis held higher than everything else. We needed to be the team that did things in the right way. And so going through to congratulate our main rivals in a similar way to Lewis Hamilton congratulating Max Verstappen at the end of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix felt right. It was a difficult thing to do in many regards but I know it was the right thing to do because it was kind, it was empathetic. It was showing some support for our main rivals because at the end of a tough competition, they had won. And I would want, if that happened the other way round, for the rival team that had lost out in a championship that we had won to come and do the same thing. And if I'm honest, that's exactly what happened when we beat Ferrari in the most difficult circumstances for them. With Lewis Hamilton in 2008, everybody remembers the way that championship finished, and yet some of the very first people to come and congratulate us in our moment of glory and celebration were the Ferrari team, were the Ferrari mechanics, the Ferrari engineers, the Ferrari team management. Coming over, making a beeline for us to shake our hands, to give us a hug, to say well done, when they must have been hurting so badly. That's kindness. And the reason that I'm telling you all of these things is not just because it was a nice, warm, fluffy, cuddly moment, it's because it changed the opinion I have of all of those people. In some cases, it cemented the opinions that I had of those people. I now know that yes, they're fierce competitors, yes, they'll go to all manner of lengths to win, as would we, but in the end, when it's all over, They're kind people behind the scenes, behind that sea of red uniform, behind the blue and yellow of Renault were a bunch of kind people just like us. And I want to be associated with those people. I want to be friends with those people. I want to hang out with those people. I want to go for a beer that evening to help celebrate with them because they're kind people. In the same way, if I think about the future after those moments... I might want to work with those people. Those are the kind of people that I'd like to do business with in the future, because I know they have great values, great beliefs, and they are kind at heart. That means an awful lot to me. It doesn't really give any indication of how good they are at their job. There are other factors that can do that. But behind all of those things is a kind person. And that counts for so much because when you're building a team inside an office, inside a company, in a business, if it's built on kind people, if you can create an organisation, a team full of kind people, your company, your team suddenly has an added strength to its armoury. It has kindness at its very heart. As I said earlier on, it's filtered right throughout the organisation. Kindness is there as one of your strengths. And if you've employed kind people, empathetic people, thoughtful people, helpful people, if you've employed those people, that's now one of the characteristics of your team, of your business, of your organization. And no matter what kind of business that is, if you're dealing with people outside of your organization, in the modern day, that becomes a hugely valuable prospect. People will want to work with you. They will want to partner with you. They might want to buy from you. They might want to take your services or products because of the values you hold yourself true to. So kindness is not just a soft, fluffy skill that used to be seen as a weakness. Today, it's a differentiator. It can set you apart from the competition in those tiny ways that at the very top end of any elite level organization or industry it's those tiny differences, those marginal gains—the marginal gains that Formula One teams are famed for. So often, we talk about those in terms of technical: how many thousands of a second can we shave off our lap time? How quickly can we bring a new upgrade to the racetrack? How quickly can we do a pit stop? How light can we make our car? What new materials can we bring to the party? But today. There are other things that we can bring that can separate us from the competition, and kindness is undoubtedly one of those things. So, what I'm trying to say is during my commentary for the Austrian Grand Prix qualifying sessions, when that moment happened and the fans of a certain driver start cheering because their rival, their competitor, has crashed heavily into the wall, I was disappointed. I was disappointed in human nature. And as I said earlier on, I know it's not unexpected. I know that it's not unusual. And I certainly know it's not specific to that group of fans. It's not new. But I would love to see that starting to change. I would love to see a mentality that embraces kindness more. And the reason is that that now reflects on the team. I know what it feels like to be tainted with a brush where everybody starts to look at you differently. And if the Red Bull fans, the Max Verstappen fans, are now being criticised, as they are, rightly so, in the media and across the world because of what they did in that moment on Friday, it will start to affect the people inside that team, the Red Bull mechanics and engineers will start to feel the pressure that they are under. They'll start to feel the disappointment of other fans around the world. They'll start to feel like they are being tarnished with that same brush. And that may be wholly unfair for the people working inside that team, but it happens. I know when McLaren were tainted after the Spygate affair of 2007, When our team was on the front page of newspapers around the world, not the back page, but the front page labelled as cheats because a very small number of people in our team had been found guilty of stealing information and utilising it within our organisation. We were branded as cheats. I hadn't done anything wrong. I wasn't a cheat. It hurt me when fans around the world of other teams began to turn on us. We were a team that was loved globally loved by most people around the world in terms of the world of Formula One. We were one of those well-loved teams for large parts of my career. And that has a powerful impact inside the team. You start to puff your chest out a little bit when you walk into the circuit wearing your team kit, because people like McLaren in the same way people tend to like Williams. And yet in that moment, we felt like people began to hate us. We felt like we were public enemy number one. And I'm not going to lie and pretend it didn't affect our performances. It absolutely did. We were ashamed at times to tell people outside of Formula One who we worked for. People criticised us. People talked down to us. People joked about us behind our backs. And that affects the way you feel. And that, as we all know, affects your performances. And so The actions of the fans in the grandstand on Friday, inadvertently, whilst I'm sure they were just having a laugh, as part of this gang mentality, this gang culture, almost like a football crowd, inadvertently, they will be affecting their own team's performance, even if only in the tiniest way. But I can tell you from experience, the way that you are perceived as a team on the outside, and people will tell you it doesn't matter, I don't care what people think, They do care. It does matter. It might only have a small effect, but even a small effect can have an impact on your performances. And so people want to be a well-loved team. And if you want to be a well-loved team, one of the things that people love to see most of all in the modern day is kindness. Use it as your strength. It's no longer a weakness. It was never a weakness, but it was often seen that way. Today, it's openly seen as a strength. So embrace it. Be kind to everybody. Be kind to the people around you. Be kind because being kind is amazing. But also start to think about the fact that being kind can give you an enormous advantage in life and in business. Even in the technical, brutal, competitive world of Formula One, kindness can start to have an impact. It can have an impact in a positive way when we are kind, in the ways that I've just described. I've experienced it. But a lack of kindness in the way that we saw on Friday afternoon in the grandstands in Austria can also start to have a negative impact on performance as well. It can create a competitive disadvantage. We need to prevent that from happening for all of those reasons. And so I would encourage all of you to think about this week a little bit more are you being kind? It may seem like a really simple question but ask it to yourself. Say it out loud. Say it in your mind. Have I been kind today? Did I do something kind today? If you can't immediately think of an answer to that, if you can't think of something you've done that's kind, well, there's a really easy fix for it. Go and do something. Start now. There is no time like the present to start being a little bit kinder than you were yesterday. And I would encourage every single person to go and do that. Right. Now, before we end today's podcast, I have a special announcement to make because if you remember, if you were listening last week, and thank you for those that have come back after listening to prior episodes, I appreciate all of you. If you are new around here, well, just bear with me a moment because last week we had a competition. I asked all of you, I asked every one of you, to share last week's episode on your socials or to leave me a review in the Apple Podcast Store, something I would always appreciate you doing. Uh, but last week I said, if you do that, I've got a copy of the brand new f One Twenty Two Formula One game to give away. And that is exactly what I'm going to do now. So I'm delighted to say a huge congratulations and thank you to somebody on Twitter who goes by the name of John At Green Digital Mobility. So, John, thank you very much. John shared my podcast episode from last week, and I'll just read out what he says because it was also a really nice message that came with it. Uh, John says in his Twitter post Decision Making and Goals, great, helpful podcast by F1 Elvis. I'm managing two lives currently in the UK and the Netherlands every week, and I get super helpful tips from this podcast. Celebrate the small wins daily, be helpful. Be kind, he says. I didn't even realise that. Well done, John. Thank you, mate. Uh, He says be kind at the end of that. And that's, of course, one of the big messages coming out of today's podcast. So congratulations, John. I have messaged you directly to find out which platform you'd like the game sent to you on. And it will be winging its way to you very, very soon. So thank you. Thank you to everybody who shared last week's podcast. And I will once again give the same plea. Don't do it just to get a free copy of the game. Uh, Do it, please, if you can, because it helps me out. Because I am asking, it's the only thing I ask in return for me and the time and commitment I put into this podcast, sharing the things that I've learned through my time in the sport. If you can give me one thing in return... It will be telling people about it, spreading the word. Just share it on your WhatsApp groups, share it on your socials. Give me a, a review in the Apple podcast or all importantly, please, please, please. I don't want to get on my hands and knees and beg, but I will if I have to. <laughs> uh, my only goal is to grow this podcast. I love doing it. I really enjoy doing it. And I think it has some important messages. I've been fortunate enough to hear these messages and see these messages firsthand through my privileged experience inside a top Formula One team in the industry of Formula One. And my only goal is to share those messages, those learnings with you, because I firmly believe that it can help us all. So if you've taken anything from today's podcast or any other podcast that I've done, Please share it, tell people about it, drop me a message, however you want to do it, just engage with the podcast and let's help spread the word together. Thank you so, so much. Now, whatever it is you're doing this week, I hope you have an amazing week. And don't forget, try your very best to achieve this every single day. Use it as your mantra, if you will, when you wake up, check in with yourself before you go to bed and ask yourself this question. Did you today... Do the right things and do the things right. Thanks, guys. Ta-da.